It's not a lane in politics. It's not a lane. That is not a lane. <laughs> right. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is the Weekly Roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel making his Weekly Roundup debut, Justin Talbot Zorn. Justin has been a policymaker and a meditation teacher in the United States Congress. Yes, you heard that right. He's a Harvard and Oxford trained specialist in the economics and psychology of well-being. He has written for publications including The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, Time, and CNN. He's also a co-founder of Astrea Strategies and the co-author of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise, which we talked about in a two-part episode in November. And both of those episodes have been some of the most highly praised episodes we've done on politicology. So if you haven't listened yet, please do uh, take a minute to listen. I loved that conversation with Justin and his co-author, Lee Justin, welcome to the Roundup. Thanks for coming back. So good to be with you, Ron. Thank you. And returning to the Roundup, Senior Advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. And he's live in the flesh in Washington, D.C. on a rare visit uh, here in studio with me, the one and only Mike Madrid. It's good to see you, Mike. Good to see you, buddy, here in the district. On this week's Roundup, First, we'll discuss the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, the potential environmental and health impact, and the lack of attention from the media and politicians. Then we'll look at reports that President Biden is planning to request the largest DOD budget in history as he negotiates with House Republicans over raising the debt ceiling. Then we'll talk about the House Republicans' investigation into the Biden family, new reports that the president's brother negotiated a deal with the Saudis back in 2012 and how these stories could impact a potential, probable re-election campaign. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss California Senator Dianne Feinstein's decision not to run for re-election in 2024 and the race to replace her that is off to a red-hot start already. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that conversation, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. There are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. And there you can get a link to use in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen in the Apple podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology show and tap the button there that says try free. And we'll dig in right after this. On February 3rd, hundreds of people were evacuated from an Ohio town after a freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed there. At least 50 rail cars derailed, and at least five tanker cars contained vinyl chloride, which is a toxic, flammable gas. After the train derailed and caused a fire, the tankers containing vinyl chloride were vented and burned to reduce the risk of a large explosion. Now, Vinyl chloride is classified as a human carcinogen. In the air, it's been linked to central nervous system effects, and chronic exposure has been shown to cause liver damage, uh, including a rare form of liver cancer. But when it burns, it decomposes into two chemicals. One of them is hydrogen chloride, which is corrosive to any tissue it comes in contact with, and two is phosgene, which is highly poisonous and was used as a choking agent during World War I. 
and vinyl chloride disperses quickly in the air, but the impact on the soil and water could be much greater. Now, in a letter sent to the railroad company, Norfolk Southern, the EPA said, chemicals released during the derailment were observed and detected in water samples from the area, including the Ohio River. And even after officials lifted the evacuation order and said it was safe to return, residents told CNN that they were experiencing nagging headaches and had difficulty breathing. They were reporting that fish and chickens have died following the derailment. And when you have a situation like this where state and local officials and the EPA are all saying it's safe to go home, but then you have these dead fish and chickens and people are saying it hurts to breathe, uh, you know, it really impacts trust in government. And so before we get into the details about the media, uh, uh, lack of lack of coverage and, and sort of lack of attention by by politicians, at least from the beginning, I want to talk about that 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 piece of it alone, the suffering and the impact and trust in government. Um, I wonder if, Justin, you want to lead off with any thoughts there. Ron, I want to say thank you for focusing on this at the top of the episode, because you're right. There has been too little attention to this because it's a, it's a genuine catastrophe, Ron. I mean, people are being forced to leave their homes. You know, they don't know when they'll be able to go back. They don't know if they'll ever be able to sell their homes. And we won't know for years or even decades what the full health implications are. You know, we still, as you mentioned, don't know what all the implications are for farmers whose soil has been contaminated in the watershed. So, you know, there's there's a lot of anger, a lot of confusion out there. And, you know, at one level, you know, yes, Norfolk Southern, the, the rail company, needs to be held accountable to the furthest extent possible, to the maximum degree possible to compensate people. There's been a huge amount of cost cutting in the rail industry over recent years. There were recent studies showing that trains keep getting longer and longer with fewer staff. Some trains are now three miles long with two people operating. And there's not a whole lot of requirements um, in terms of safety, in terms of new regulations that are coming forward. Yeah, but one thing I've been thinking about, too, with this run is just how a lot of these issues are, are bigger and system-wide. You know, there are these so-called forever chemicals that are man-made chemicals that don't degrade over time. And there are a lot of initiatives right now. One study found there's 1,600 initiatives now from different governments around the world to work toward banning and regulating these chemicals. But it's slow moving. So one hope I have as I think about this is, you know, after Love Canal in the 70s with all the contamination that happened, you know, that was the impetus for the legislation that created the Superfund program for um, dealing with toxic chemicals and waste dumps from the EPA. And, you know, after Flint, you know, that, that raised issues around lead and water and contamination of water, which led to some of the actions that have happened recently with the Biden administration um, getting lead out of water, you know, with the Infrastructure Act and within the Inflation Reduction Act to focus on that. So I hope this will be a wake-up call around toxic chemicals and around these safety issues. Yeah, I want to talk about why we haven't been talking about this more. Because when I learned about this story um, just yesterday, so this would be Wednesday, you're hearing this episode on Friday, This I don't watch cable news, uh, but it really wouldn't have mattered because this hasn't really been uh, on cable news very much. And it really didn't penetrate my information bubble in any meaningful way. But it happened back on February 3rd. It's it's been it's been a couple of weeks now, and we're just now talking about it. And uh, so so this derailment hasn't received much coverage on broadcast news. The left leaning 
um, Media Matters for America logged 15 minutes of coverage on ABC, CBS, and NBC. And then the right-leaning Media Research Center concluded that those networks uh, fell just shy of a combined 30 minutes on the derailment. The Media Matters also noted that in October 2021, when an offshore oil pipe was breached near a popular beach in Orange County, there was far more media coverage. Uh, ABC and NBC aired 15 segments each about the spill, and CBS added another 13 segments. And so, Mike, I wonder if you have any thoughts on what's going on here with the lack of media coverage in a rural white town in Ohio um, compared to some other natural disasters and, and the way the media loves a sensational, catastrophic environmental story, but seemingly not this one. Yeah, look, that's a great question. I think no matter how you slice it, how you dice it, at some point you're going to get back to the fact that there's there's a class consideration here. It's who's being affected. When, you, when it happens in Orange County, um, it, it, it's a bigger issue, right? These are, are very wealthy, prominent, well-connected, well-connected, influential communities, and that's a bigger disaster. Look at Flint, Michigan, with with the water situation. That I'm still don't think it's resolved, oh. and th- I mean that was going on for decades before it, it was really brought to people's attention, and then it broke through for a while, and 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 still persists. So yeah, I look. I think you said it right in the question, which is this is a white, rural, low income, sparse area, um, which is just kind of a passing place uh, through Ohio, and it's it's not getting the attention it deserves. But as Justin pointed out, this is a this is a catastrophe. Yeah, this is like these are forever chemicals. This is stuff that lasts a very long time. The canaries are literally dying in the cold mine, yeah. like literally animals are dying. That's the biggest sign. It, when Aaron Brockovich weighs in, that, that you know, nothing good comes of that when yeah. it gets to Aaron Brockovich level. Did she? Yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah. She did an interview with Jake Tapper and she's, you know, sounding the alarm bells too. I mean, this is, this is not, I mean, look, look uh, certainly the, the rail lines have a, 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 an invested, you know, purpose in moving beyond this yeah. snooze cycle. Yeah. And, 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 you know, they'll deal with the cleanup however they can or will, but they want to do it as much in the private, you know, sphere yeah. as they can and not have this be public. My sense is that the government wants the same thing as let's mm. just not, you know, shake confidence and let's not worry folks and let's just kind of move on. Um, th- there needs to be a lot more attention, yeah. uh, a lot more. And, and, and yeah, look, I'm a voracious consumer of news. I've only seen tidbits about this, you know, kind of in passing. It's not something that I was very, uh, you know, deeply informed about. Yeah. But I do believe, though, that we are we are getting as more as more red flags appear. Yeah. Uh, I think we are we are finally starting to tune in more. Yeah. But I can't under under any under any auspice think that it would be safe or wise to move back. Most of these people don't have an option. Right. This is their home. There's no way out. There's nowhere to go. So this is where you go. But is it safe? I mean, if you've got to ask the question, is mm. it safe to go home? It's not safe if to go a, home. Yeah. If there's a question mark there. <laughs> yeah, there, there, yeah. There's the answer. Yeah. And so that's, I, I think it's particularly problematic, but I think you're exactly right is we, we do still have these demographic biases and that's a gentle diplomatic way of saying it when it is wealthier folks and when it is higher income communities uh, in, in, in a larger metropolitan area where there's a bigger media market, it's going to get covered where it's not, this is a catastrophe. This is not a small deal. This is, this is a multi-generational problem. That's going to affect the water table. That's going to affect the soil that affects the air that's killing animals. And if you're going to tell me it's safe to go back, I mean, you, you've got to be kidding me. So 
this is now where I want to get into the politics of this because East Palestine is largely Republican. Um, 72% of residents voted for Donald Trump in 2020, 72%. They're also, as we, as we noted, predominantly white, more than 93% of residents are white. Um, secretary of transportation, Pete Buttigieg didn't comment on the derailment for 10 days before tweeting that he was concerned about the impacts. Uh, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine said at a Tuesday press conference that President Biden has reached out and offered any assistance they need, but that DeWine has not called him back. Um, and Mike, just last week, we talked about uh, Biden reaching out specifically to working class voters in the State of the Union, uh, telling them that he hasn't forgot about them. And so I want to go to Justin first about how you're thinking about sort of the lack of a response from Biden in that context and and from maybe congressional leadership, especially given the prioritization of infrastructure, one of his landmark achievements. And, you know, Biden's the Amtrak guy. He's the train guy. He's the Amtrak Joe. I don't understand politically how this wouldn't be a win for uh, for Biden, for the White House, for Democratic leadership to say, this is exactly why we're investing in infrastructure and in rail infrastructure. This is what you, this is, right? I don't understand why the why the, why the silence? Why wouldn't you take the opportunity for a home run here? I think we may see more of that now that more of the details are coming out. Because when this first happened, it looked like, oh, well, a wheel bearing overheated on a train, some chemicals spilled, you know, was burned off. That was bad. But now there's more and more awareness as people are explaining the kinds of symptoms they're getting as more of the scientific evidence is coming out about what these chemicals mean. I mean, this was tantamount to you know, if if a foreign adversary had lobbed a chemical weapon at a small town in the United States in terms of the impact. But when we look at it in terms of the news, you know, it says, oh, a wheel bearing on a train overheated, you know, and some chemicals spilled. And they took the better of two bad options. You know, the, the concern was that there would be a massive explosion that would be even worse. So Mike DeWine and other local officials, local and state officials authorized the the venting and burning of the of the chemicals. But, you know, it, it is an opportunity, I think, here for the Biden administration, not just rhetorically and for other public officials, not just rhetorically, but substantively to start linking issues of infrastructure to issues of safety. You know, and also, you know, when we talk about climate, when we talk about environmental policy these days, it tends to be so polarized. You know, most Republicans didn't support the inflation, no Republicans in Congress supported the Inflation Reduction Act. But really, a lot of environmental policy is about this kind of public safety. And Ron, I was thinking about this the other day when I saw that uh, J.D. Vance joined um, John Fetterman, Bob Casey, and Sherrod Brown in a letter to the EPA that was, you know, fairly strongly worded. And my first thought was, wow, that's pretty rare to see a J.D. Vance join with Democrats and anything going to the EPA. And I realized that this is a matter of like absolute basic bedrock public safety, even survival for constituents. And that's what environmental policy, that's what all environmental policy ultimately should be about. But in a case like this, where it's really so visceral and it's so clear what the stakes are, you know, then that becomes more evident. So, you know, as I was saying before, like, you know, the way Love Canal galvanized action, the way Flint took a little while, but Flint at least galvanized some action in some of the recent legislation for replacing lead pipes, and my hope is that this could be the basis, this should be the basis, I should say, 
This should be a wake-up call to get some more bipartisan action on public safety around you know, the transportation of toxic chemicals, but more importantly, working to monitor and understand the implications of toxic chemicals and supply chains, as many countries around the world are, are starting to do right now. Mike, any closing thoughts on this segment about the political opportunity to say to a class of voters, you aren't left behind, we see you, you are part of our vision for the future, sort of to, 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 to sort of cut against a lot of what the right-wing media is feeding them about democratic leadership. How would you play this? Well, if I'm, if I'm, I, look, there's some surprise, I think, at the slow moving of the administration, but I'm also, you know, keenly aware that you all, you don't want to overshoot here and you don't want to undershoot, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to make a situation where one doesn't exist and you don't want to downplay a situation where it's, it's a significant catastrophe. And, and clearly like this wasn't being ignored by the administration. I think they were trying to do their due diligence to understand not just what happened, but what are the impacts going to be before we start scaring people? Yeah. And if we scare people unnecessarily, what is the what is the political downside? What's the public health downside of that? Um, as as opposed to overshooting and and over making this a bigger deal when it really wasn't, yeah. right? And so you've got to try to find that sweet spot. And I appreciate that, but in in, in when it comes to a an issue of public health and lives are at risk, you got to overshoot. You got to make it a bigger deal than it's not, and if if it's not and everything's cleaned up, then you back it up. And frankly, the politics get even better for you right. then. So look politically, look look. I, I I teach a course called race, class, and partisanship. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. This is this is literally the type of issue we explore in depth to yeah. say. What is the difference between this and Flint? What is yeah. the difference? What, what, are the, what are the political ramifications? What are the class ramifications? And because this is a poor white area, what does that mean politically? And, and, and how does it intersect with the other two? I, I'm a just a, a very big believer that, again, overshooting is the best thing to do. The Democrats have been struggling with poor rural whites for the past four election cycles um, and, and this is that moment, especially when you have branded your entire state of the union around this demographic and frankly did a good job, did a very good job, did a really good, good job. job. This is yeah. the type of misstep or missed opportunity that could start to unwind that, or at least lean into the credibility yeah. of, of uh, eroding the credibility of what your messaging was. I think it is fascinating that a Fox News hasn't picked this up and said yeah. that they don't care about white people, right? right? When yeah. they care about Flint, but they don't care yeah. about East Palestine. They'll, I think it'll get to Fox News. I'm I, sure that it will because the they'll see the opportunity right too. Yeah. Once once the bubbling <laughs> starts going up, they're going to see the marketing opportunity too. That's their demographic. That's their base. Yeah, I guarantee you that everybody in that yep. city is watching Fox News, yep. right? So Trump gets 72%. I mean, there's that, that's their audience. And there's every opportunity to say, look what Joe Biden doesn't care about you. Pete Buttigieg, of course, like the worst guy yeah. in the administration, <laughs> the worst guy didn't even the tweet, didn't even tweet for 10 days. Yeah. Like that's, that's the opportunity and, and, and for, for, for Fox and for, for the right. So I look, and again, I hate to break this down to the, the crass political, but it is, but it is, yeah, it is. It to just, understand why things are moving the way they are, you have to read it through a political. Yeah, you have to, you have to, and that's just where we're at. And I do think that this has been a missed opportunity. Doesn't mean it can't be salvaged by the Biden folks, but you're going to have to overshoot now. Yeah, you have to overdo it, and they should. They should. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they will. It's it's interesting too, at some level, thinking how the politics actually results in substantive policy change here. Yeah. Because if you think about like what caused this. 
There are now some technologies, some acoustic sensors that are able to tell if a wheel bearing overheats. You know, there's some new, more sophisticated braking systems for trains, for example. You know, but that's big government regulation at some level. I mean, that is putting new requirements on a company, and that's going to cost money. You know, companies like Norfolk Southern, some of these freight rail companies are doing really well lately. You know, freight is up. Um you know, but as you have a kind of Republican right-wing movement that's more skeptical of corporate power, that's more skeptical of, you know, unaccountable big institutions, whether that's government or corporations, at least in the rhetoric, mm -hmm. the question is, does that actually translate into an appetite to put regulations on a company like Norfolk Southern? Yeah. I don't know the answer. I mean, my hunch is no. Yeah. It's a great question and worth a shot. Late last week, Politico reported that the Biden administration is preparing to ask Congress for the largest period Pentagon period budget period in history. Uh, officials are very close to setting on a final top line number for the Defense Department. That's according to the report. Um, and that will get included as part of President Biden's budget request set for release on March 9th. Uh, the Pentagon Comptroller, Michael McCord, told Politico that he expects that top line number to be greater than the $817 billion Congress approved for DOD spending last year. And that was $45 billion more than Biden had requested. At the time, it was the most the U.S. had ever spent on DOD, in part due to uh, their efforts to counter threats from Russia, keep pace with China's growing technological advantage, modernize aging weaponry, uh, and fight inflation. And this is all according to Politico's reporting. The budget proposal is going to come at a time while the Biden administration is negotiating with Kevin McCarthy and Republicans in the House over raising the debt limit. McCarthy's demanding to see deep spending cuts, including potentially in defense spending, in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. But Republicans still haven't rallied behind a specific set of proposals to raise the debt limit. They haven't said what they want. Uh, McCarthy's proposed capping spending at fiscal 2022 levels. Um, and if that does include the Pentagon, they lose about $75 billion in funding. And that constitutes about 10% of the budget. Um, but there are deep divisions uh, in the Republican con conference about uh, defense cuts. And a lot of the hawkish members of the conference have pushed to tamp down on any talk of reducing the Pentagon's budget. Um, some are even uh, eyeballing a 5% increase in spending this year. So uh, the story about the Pentagon budget is coming out in the moment in, the, in this context of Republican attacks on Biden for being weak, right, in his reaction to the Chinese spy balloon that was shot down in early February. So I wonder what the political move here is. What does proposing the, the biggest defense budget get him while he's reportedly preparing to announce a reelection campaign? Mike, do you want to lead off? Yeah, there's two really very large tectonic plates moving here, and I want to kind of briefly address them both. The first is um, it's very important, I think, for people to understand that we're not preparing for war. We're at war. We are, there's a, it's not a cold war. It, it's more like a shadow war. But what, what has happened in Ukraine, the, the, the Russian interference in not just our democracy in 2016, which really started for six years before that aggressively, is has been happening to democracies all over the globe. China's expansionism um, um, has has been, you know, a, a feature of the geopolitical system for the same amount of time. 
Um, we, we are we are we are combat. There's there's multi fronts to this war. This next war is not going to look like World War II. It's not going to be you know storming the beaches at Normandy, although that will be an element of it, and that's what we are preparing the infrastructure for. It's going to be cyber warfare. It's going to be a, a war of the digital age, and it will have kinetic aspects the same way it is in the Donbass and in Ukraine at the moment. But but it is important that we understand that we are a country at war. We are we're a world at war, and 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 democracies fighting authoritarianism is not going to be a, a a debate that's happened on the floors of legislatures. It's going to be happening in real time, um, in, in the technological space, in, in 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 the battlefield space, and that's what this budget really does yeah. reflect. Yeah. But there's one other really important piece that that we are kind of sliding by because there are so many other pieces yeah. that are happening. And that is the changing nature of the Republican yeah. ideological framework. And, and, and Justin just pointed something out, too, that, that fits into this piece very, very nicely. And that is um, th- this this growing concern amongst Republican elected officials and voters about, about corporations. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party is not the party of big business anymore. Right. And they're also in less in increasingly less likely to be the party of big defense spending as isolationism starts to grip the Republican Party. It's growing. It's growing, and it's going to get intense. And when when the Pentagon has to fight with the Republican Speaker of the House to get the budget that they want, I mean, what, what, this is like Alice in Wonderland. Like, have we gone through the looking glass here? Yeah. And then there's there's this open warfare that that Kevin McCarthy is having with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, so so think about that for a moment. Is, is I think most people aren't even aware of they're that. they're not even aware of this, but it's so important to understand the chessboard of what is happening politically and why the Democrats are behaving the way they are. Is there's a necessary void to fill? Is yeah. Biden has to fill this void? In many ways, he's looking more and more like a Republican from the '80s and '90s. Right. Then uh, and that's a lot of criticism from the left that he's getting, and right. that's understandable. Of course, he's the executive; he has to run the country. He doesn't yeah. have a choice. He's trying to put the U.S. back on the map as the leader of the free world, and that takes military strength at this moment. Military yeah. and and economic, I would argue too. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, he's being the responsible arbiter of these ideological, yeah. you know, uh, collapses of the Republican Party. So so just just real quick review here. The Republican Party is no longer the party of big business and big corporations. It can't be trusted. It's also becoming an open, oh, it now has an openly antagonistic yeah. relationship with the United States Chamber of Commerce, which is big, medium, and small businesses. And the Pentagon can't trust the Republican Party. Okay, yeah. so so viewers, re- are, rewind that a few times. Those, those are those are yeah. Because those 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 aren't coincidences. This is the changing ideology of the American right. Yeah. It's isolationist. It's protectionist. It, it's 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 nativist. Yeah. It, it's all of those dangerous elements that we've always fought for, uh, fought against rather, as Americans. Yeah. Are, are that is becoming the central ideology of one of the major political parties in the country. Yeah. And it's behaving that way. And so the only adult in the room is the Democratic Party. Well, and Mitch McConnell, actually. And Mitch McConnell, right. for, for the time being. Right. We'll see what he can deliver, right. right? But these are forces that Mitch McConnell is trying to keep at, keep bay, at bay in his own caucus in the Republican Party. That's yeah. why he went to you know war with Rick Scott over his idiotic proposal. But but yes, totally. Yeah. Well, look, at Boehner yeah. tried to, yeah. and Paul Ryan tried yeah. to, and McCarthy basically said, no, I want to be speaker, so to have whatever you want. Yeah. I'll be that guy. Yeah, yeah. 
And yeah. I don't I don't know how long he lasts, but that's I mean, how long can McConnell last, right? right? When there's open warfare breaking out in his caucus too. You never thought anybody would challenge McConnell. Right. But here it is, here we are. Right. So Justin, the question I have for you is how do you read the internal politics of the Democratic Party when you have these shifts happening on the Republican side and a Democratic president who, as Mike said, is being forced to to fill this void of of sort of responsible leadership in a moment when he's trying to fend off uh, progressive challenges in a in a in a in a presidential primary, hoping that none of them get into the race? Right? What does this do to uh, to the Democratic Party's brand? Um, if, if, if it continues this direction? It's a super interesting question, Ron. You know, I think about this in the prism of, you know, Bernie just announcing he's not running against Biden. You know, he doesn't really have anyone to the left of him, at least announced so far. Right. You right. know, he's he's done well in the eyes of most progressives, you know, passing the Inflation Reduction Act, getting a little bit of action on gun control. You know, it's a, it's a serious set of accomplishments that he was able to lay out, including a lot of the regulatory reforms he was able to lay out at the State of the Union. But, you know, as we really think about what the politics are going to look like and what the real policy implications of this are going to look like, you know, it would be a very different proposition to propose raising defense spending a year ago because we know that the Republican House is going to demand now deep spending cuts. That was the deal for, you know, for the speakership. And we've seen this movie before, you know, 10 years ago when there was a Democratic president and a Republican House, you know, when we saw sequestration and the Budget Control Act happen, you know, we know there's going to be deep spending cuts proposed. And given the circumstances and given these um, shifts that Mike just mentioned rightly in the Republican Party, you know, there is a possibility of some cuts to defense spending. So by raising the defense budget or at least anchoring higher in a negotiation, that may mean deeper cuts to non-defense discretionary spending. And that's really going to have implications for Biden's standing with progressives. You know, and the, the bottom line is, you know, yes, there are, there are serious rising security implications, like Mike just mentioned and you just mentioned, Ron. And politically, Democrats, I think, do want to say, hey, we're the adults in the room. We're the ones that the international community that our allies can count on. But the bottom line is that $858 billion that was appropriated or authorized, I should say, by Congress at the end of the year and likely to be the basis of this budget, that's a lot of money. Trump had raised the Pentagon budget substantially as well. You know, so this is a higher baseline as well. You know, Larry Korb at the Center for American Progress is someone I really respect a lot on these issues. That's a line that like he says something to the effect of no matter how much a country or any country spends on defense you can't buy perfect security. Like we always need to do as much as we can with, with a reasonable budget. And there's opportunities for finding cost cutting in the Pentagon budget. So I think it's, it's important to be thinking about all the trade-offs here. Yes, it's important to you know, make sure we're well-resourced for all our responsibilities we're taking on in the world. You know, but is it possible to find some cost cutting? And there's some opportunities for doing that that may not affect some of these kinds of top line uh, requirements, responsibilities that the U.S. has. You know, that may allow the administration to present a, a lower budget number. 
Yeah, a lot of the conversation so far around negotiations to raise the debt limit and and curb spending have obviously focused on a Biden versus McCarthy narrative, but we're really looking at a Republicans versus Republicans fight here on 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 this issue, especially military spending. So, yeah, I just I just wonder how it's going to shape the way, you know, Democrats will go approach negotiations when Republicans haven't reached a consensus and we're just watching that play out sort of in real time. This is a unique fight that way. Yeah. It's usually this bilateral fight between Republicans right. and Democrats and who's going to win in the court of public opinion. Incidentally, the Democrats have always won this yeah. fight because it, it, it's a matter of time and how much pain the country is willing to go through. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans always overestimate how how much time they've got and, and how much pain people are willing to go through and start yeah. shutting down the government. Yeah. Uh, this is a fight between Republicans, like you yeah. just said. Yeah. And it, it could be a very damaging fight. Yeah. And it's the right fight, I think, that that Biden wants to have going into a reelection effort. Yeah, it's smart for him. Is if he's the hawk, yeah. you know, where do you where where do independents go? Like where do and if you start to see a cleavage in the Republican Party. By the way, the the one thing Republicans still remain overwhelmingly consistent with where they were before Trump is on the military, military spending and having a strong international role. Right. Like that isolationism element is there. Right. But like Russia is still viewed as the enemy. Like uh, the, yeah. the Red Dawn stuff in the '80s right. stuck with a lot of these older people now. <laughs> like they, all that propaganda worked. Like yeah. they're not moving. Like right. they, Trump has never been able to back yeah. them off. Right. And so this is a real. It's a real. It's a real schism. Yeah. Um, between where the average Republican voter is, and this isolationist wing that is really trying to take hold, and it can't be anything but damaging to the Republicans. I mean, in some ways, it seems like such a counter to the conventional thinking that you have the Democrats in the position of the Hawks and the Republicans looking a little bit more isolationist than the Doves. You know, but the same kind of dynamic even played out during John F. Kennedy's time, you know, wanting to surprise people by being the progress, you know, being the more liberal candidate, you know, trying to out hawk the Republicans, you know, at that point, um, Nixon, you know, in the 1960 election. It's an old dynamic, you know, really in, in some way. I remember about seven or eight years ago, um, I was at the time legislative director for John Conyers, an old liberal lion in the House and, you know, member of the Progressive Caucus. And I was involved in in running a working group that we had to, uh, between progressive Democrats and at the time, uh, some of the most radical right-wing members of the House, Freedom Caucus members, you know, Mark Meadows, Mick Mulvaney, when they were both members of the House. We're part of this working group that we had. And we would go through the Pentagon budget and bring experts in and say, you know, like really get into the nitty gritty details. You know, like, is it possible to, um, you know, retire some of the Navy's littoral combat ships, you know, to be able to save money in this account, you know, and and divert it elsewhere and bring in military and strategic experts. And it it was one of the most productive bipartisan, or I should even say almost like transpartisan where you had the the farthest left and farthest right in Congress getting together and actually actually doing something substantive. Um, and I was always struck by those meetings by, you know, how much was possible in terms of Pentagon budget cutting that would be relatively non-controversial, you know, relatively, uh, you know, relatively technocratic steps you could take. You know, you'd upset some interest groups, you'd upset some, um, some defense contractors, but but there's there's room to find to find opportunities to save money if you really look for it. 
Late last week, Republican James Comer, who is the chair of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, requested documents related to Hunter Biden's foreign business pursuits. Uh, now, look, Hunter Biden has obviously received tons of media attention over the last uh, three years. But Comer also requested documents from the president's brother, James Biden, related to his foreign business dealings. And in the letter, um, in the letters, Comer said that he was seeking documents and communications from the Bidens as part of an investigation into possible involvement by the president in their financial conduct, and that he was particularly focused on business deals, quote, with individuals who are connected to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Comer also accused them of receiving large sums of money from foreign companies without providing any known legitimate services. But then early this, we wouldn't even be talking about this, except then early this week, um, the Daily Mail obtained two sworn affidavits that claim James Biden, again, uh, the president's brother, was hired to negotiate a $140 million settlement between a U.S. construction company uh, called Hill International and Saudi Arabia in 2012. Uh, one claimed that James Biden was selected because Saudi Arabia, quote, would not dare stiff the brother of the vice president who would be instrumental to the deal, end quote. Now, there's no comma in that statement in the sworn affidavit, so that who could be read, uh, could be read in, in different ways. Um, they also claim that Biden said he was often picked to attend meetings because, quote, the name didn't hurt, end quote. And a spokesperson for James Biden said that he never negotiated with the Saudi government on behalf of Hill or any other company and that the story was an attempt to smear Jim Biden. Now, these filings are part of a legal dispute between a law firm and that U.S. construction company I mentioned called Hill International, one from a treasury official turned private investigator, uh, and the other uh, is from a partner at the law firm uh, Langford & Reed. After the Daily Mail published their story, Comer told the New York Post, uh, quote, evidence continues to mount that the Biden family used Joe Biden's name to secure deals around the world to enrich themselves, end quote. So before everyone gets angry, uh, I'm talking to you, Politicology listeners, and uh, we, we need Justin to lead us in a uh, meditation here. There, 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 there is a difference between an elected official's family using their name to do business as private citizens and how Trump's family members who worked in the White House profited from their positions. We are not, we're not playing that game here. Um, these are different people who spend time recording and listening to podcasts uh, like this. Are, they're mostly likely going to recognize and appreciate those differences. But most voters don't fit into that bucket. Um, so how will this get filtered out to more unplugged voters is, is really the question. Because there's a lot of unknowns here. And the reason we chose to talk about it today are because these are, this is not just hearsay. This is not speculation. We have two sworn affidavits and we have the actual documents available to us. And so there's, there's some story here and it is developing and it seems serious. So, um, Justin, do you want to lead off here? For me, the bottom line is that Biden needs to take this seriously, you know, rhetorically. And as he's thinking about what he could do substantively to show his, integrity, you know, to show that he's taking this seriously, the integrity of his family, you know, it's not a good, it's not a good look, certainly. And, and one thing I think he could do is to just say that he should have privately, or at least to some degree, explained more clearly to his family members that it's not appropriate to leverage the name, you know, or to issue some kind of statement discouraging that kind of behavior. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, the 
point of this is to try to draw some kind of equivalence between Bidens and the Trumps. That's that's the point of the Republicans raising this, you know, and also to some degree to maybe get people to just say, oh, all these politicians, they're all corrupt. It's all the same. And, you know, the the fact is the corruption of the Trump family is, of course, orders of magnitude greater than anything we're seeing here. You know, trying to get government contracts for Trump hotels or <laughs> on and on and on. You know, and it's kind of inherent to the character of Donald Trump to even brag about this kind of corruption. But President Biden needs to be out in front, you know, really taking this seriously, acknowledging that it's an issue. You know, to date, none of these accusations point to anything specific that challenges the fundamental character of President Biden, you know, in a way that the issues with with Trump certainly did. But still, nonetheless, I think he needs to take it really seriously, take it head on. Mike, the thing that stood out to me, I mean, first of all, anytime I see the Saudi royal family involved in a in a in a money story with U.S. politicians, my hackles go up. And so, you know, enter the missing investigation into Jared's affairs with the Saudi royal family, uh, which I would still like to see. But um, but this to me seems like a massive opportunity for Republicans to leverage to give further legs to the classified documents narrative. Um, and so I wonder um, how you think this is going to, this is just beginning. I think this is just oh, going to sure. begin to add more yeah. texture and color to the narrative that, you know, they've already been using, which is the Biden crime family. Right. So, <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's yeah. how, that's how this is going to go. So the question is, um, you know, you have, talked about the refrigerator hum of, of January 6th and the investigations and, and the significance that that can have, uh, as sort of background noise, um, going into this election, which is, you know, now getting underway. So I wonder how you think the refrigerator hum of, uh, of this narrative, this particular narrative is going to build and impact, um, yeah. Uh, well, race. look, this isn't good news yeah. no matter for Biden, no matter how you slice it, but let me, let me kind of answer that as sort of a strategist. Yeah. If I was kind of yeah. looking at this race yeah. for Joe Biden. Um, first of all, I, I'm not really concerned at all about kind of, you know, the, the approval rating metric. I've been yeah. saying that for a couple of years. Right. It's just it's just not something that needs to be looked at in an era, especially of negative partisanship. And you have to look at the contest between two people. Yeah. And in that environment, uh, since the, the 2000 election, I mean, the, the range of differential between the two candidates and the popular vote has been 3% or less. There's no movement in the electorate, and I will continue to say that. This type of, of an event tends to energize both sides. This gives kind of the Trump or Republican people the, 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 all the fuel they need to say, see, Trump didn't do anything wrong, and kind of go on offense no matter how – equivalent they are or aren't it doesn't matter they're gonna yeah. they're gonna use that and biden people will be like to for the to the largest extent will start saying well there's a reason for this there's an excuse for this and while they are not equivalent obviously um this is a very serious problem that that should be taken very seriously like this is this is yeah. not good so but having said that that what you really want to look for is the independent movement mm -hmm. And where independents are going to be moving and where they're shifting, this is a group that Trump won in 16. It's a group that Biden won in 2020. Um, and it's not necessarily that they're not party affiliated or not ideologically anchored. 
these tend to be lower information voters who are going to be consuming information and news to whatever sources that they get, usually highly filtered. And once they start to say, okay, yeah, they're probably both corrupt. There's no angels in this business, but who do I essentially trust more? Mm-hmm. And so when it's asked that way, when you, when you start to look at polling, don't look at the, uh, do you approve or disapprove it? Right. It's really meaningless. Right. But do you, do you, do you trust Joe Biden more than Donald Trump? And don't even look at that head to head. Look at how independents view that. Mm-hmm. That's going to tell you everything you need to know about how corrosive this could be for Biden and how strong he truly is in a head to head with either him or DeSantis or whoever the nominee is going to be. Yeah. So, look, do I think that this is bad news? Yeah, I think this is bad news. Do I think it takes him out of the election? Not at all. Not, not even in the smallest way. I think it just adds some ammunition to yeah. pushing independents away from Biden where he was able to move them in 2020. I, I still don't think this changes the dynamics of the race in any fundamental way. Yeah. Not to mention the, 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 the fundraising fodder that it will be. I mean, every time I, every time we talk about like the negative partisanship thing, I always come back to, yeah, but the money, the money, the money, the money, yeah. the money. and that the money isn't coming from the places you think it's coming from. It's Correct. coming from five and ten five dollar donations donors all over out. the country. Yeah. That is the, that is now the, that's mother's the milk of politics. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And this is the kind of stuff that gets you that money. Yeah. And that's what gets the, the base intense. That's what gets people wired up is yeah. people are not hearing about the Trump family and all right. the corruption that was going on <laughs> yeah, there. Right. They're focused on the, the Biden crime family, right? Yeah. The best way to protect yourself and your own weaknesses yeah. is to project those weaknesses onto your, yeah. to your opposition. And people are so primed to hate the opposition that they're going to believe whatever chum you throw into the water. Like yeah. they're going to just snap it up. Yeah. And that's what this is. I mean, that's the, that's the real casualty here of, of our political environment is the truth. And it is why it takes people of virtue to stand up as Justin was saying and have Biden deal with this honestly, not because it serves him politically, but because it preserves the system in its weakest moments that really needs people to stand up and say, Hey, this may hurt me politically. It may hurt my family and embarrass me, but there's a bigger calling here, which is if I lean into this Mm -hmm. the way that the Republicans are, what are we doing? That's the whole yeah. undercarriage of the system starts to rattle and, and and come apart. Hey, Justin, got any thoughts about truth being the biggest casualty of our current political environment? <laughs> <laughs> Question of our times, huh? You know, if I think about you know just the the onslaught of lies in the in the Trump years, you know, big big ones and little ones alike. You know what that mm. did to people's perception of truth. I mean, looking at. George Santos now, and kind of my concern is about people growing up in an environment like that, thinking that that kind of behavior is okay, you know, and and I think a big part of this, this effort to really focus on Hunter Biden, even though all of this is really peripheral to Joe Biden himself as a politician, as a decision maker, you know, these are not reflections of choices that he's making, you know, the, the, the impact the result is to make people just say, oh, they're all corrupt. I can't trust government. I can't trust anyone in politics. And that's a serious, you know, that's a serious problem because there's a lot that we need to do together. There's a lot that we need to do as a matter of collective action. And that means that we need to have politicians that people could trust, that people can really respect and admire. So I think this whole, you know, one level, the denigration of of trust that you know, of truth and trust that Trump accelerated is a big problem. But then the kind of, 
nature of politics now where each side needs to not just question the integrity and you know fight over issues but be at an all-out nuclear war on questions of integrity and trust is really corrosive to the public discourse and really troubling from the standpoint of of what we need to do together to deal with big issues that matter right now Mike is here in D.C. because he's being honored with a major award from Unidos U.S., which is? It's one of the largest, it's the largest and probably the oldest Latino civil rights organization in the country. And every year they kind of, you know, do this, uh, uh, take the opportunity to recognize the career work, the life work, which means I think I'm getting old is really what it's it means. It's a lifetime achievement so, award. Always, I don't know about that, but it's, <laughs> it's it, you know, Senator Be, uh, Ben uh, Ray Lujan from New Mexico and myself were, were honored uh, for, for our work. And uh, it was kind of a big night for New Mexico's and New Mexicans because my, my people are from Silver City, New Mexico. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we were there, you know, was, when it was a territory before before statehood wow. on my father's side. My mother's people are from Durango and Sonora, northern Mexico. But anyway, we, we you know, had opportunity. It was, it, was, it was a great event. I mean, Unidos U.S. does a, a really good job. There was probably six 700 people there. I got to see my good friend Alex Padilla uh, came in. Uh, you have known Alex since he was the president of LA City Council at 26. Oh, so our amazing. careers kind of, you know, uh, you know, we grew up together in California politics, and to see what he's doing now has been phenomenal. But you have to be recognized by your peers and and sometimes by people that you haven't necessarily always agreed with mm-hmm. is an honor. And I think that when you've got that genuine commitment to community beyond political party, yeah. um, you start to really not only develop some good friendships, but I think really start to make progress and get a lot of things done if you recognize that as human beings, we're not always right as strident as we get, that other people have something to offer. And once you trust that people are genuinely committed to a goal, um, you find your way working with them. And it was just a great, great moment. Was this a bit of a, uh, oh, everything Mike's been saying for the last 30 years was actually right kind of, kind of moment. Was this a little uh, bit um, validating? Yeah, it was validating. I'll say that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's probably a lot, there, were, there are a lot of people in there who still disagree with everything that I do. <laughs> uh, and that's okay. There are a lot of people, Al, our friend Al Cardenas was there, oh, yeah. you know, from Florida and his wife, Anna Navarro was there. Uh, people from California, Ruben Barales from Wells Fargo, uh, who I knew from the 1998 campaign when you ran for state controller. I'm like, people I've known through decades of my life and my career, yeah. some of whom I agree with politically, some of them whom I don't. But you, it, it is something special when you're in a room with a lot of Democrats and Republicans and people who love my work on the Lincoln Project, people who hated my work on the Lincoln Project. But it was all really about everyone coming together and saying, you know what? We are all different. We all disagree on a lot. Uh, we all fight a lot, but we are all genuinely committed to seeing the community succeed. Mm. And I think there's just a lot of a lot of deference paid to that. Yeah. And I don't know if that's unique with this group or this community, but there's no animosity. There's no anger. There's just a genuine, you know, people that I've met for the first time after, you know, fighting with them for 30 years on different issues or different campaigns mm. and just big hugs and embraces and saying, it's great to finally oh, meet you in wow. person. And, you know, I, I disagree with your work and I, but, <laughs> but I don't, I don't doubt your sincerity. Yeah. And, and, you know, you need this U S has, has it, for, it's almost 50 years old now. And when it started, you know, the Latino population was maybe 3% of, of, of the, of the country and, you know, within 15 years, we're going to be 
a non-white majority country mm-hmm. in large part because of this Latinization of America that mm-hmm. I've been talking with viewers um, on your show about for the past couple of years. That you're writing a book about right now. That I'm writing a book about right now. Uh, due out in spring 2024, so pre-order. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, it, and, and that, but that that is, um, you know, it's just, it's it's one of those inflective moments in my career where you just kind of step back, being recognized by people, recognizing that there's a broader community out there that has supported me, even though it may not agree with me. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of hopeful, I think, for for democracy and where, where, where we're going is there is a cultural component that is like, you know what, we don't agree, but but we do care in, 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 and are worried about your success yeah. uh, because your voice matters. And I think that's what, I think that's what makes democracies yeah. work. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. Uh, and that was a big so part of the good. speech I gave was about being hopeful about, you know, we, we are at a time in American history where it feels like something is dying. Yeah. And I think that's true, but yeah. we also have to recognize something really remarkable is being born. Being born out of that. And out of that yeah. is is where I, I want to focus my energy and efforts and yeah. watching that that you yeah. know emerge yeah. um, is 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 the next chapter of the American story. I mean, it feels like it these, does these feel are the like final it. days yeah. of the chapter, but I really don't believe that. I yeah. really believe that it's you know it's that season finale maybe, but it opens up into this better episode of something that takes everything that we've learned. And and gets back to that Obama Lincoln esque yeah. more perfect union that that's where yeah. this arc is heading and I, I there's tons of data and evidence to show that that's, that's what's happening that's what's going on yeah beautiful thanks brother. congratulations and thanks for all your kind words on it yeah <laughs> appreciate it. Ron did a a video as part of this big video presentation so so uh, always always love uh, your uh, thought your sincerity and your support over the years brother. All right. Now that we've uh, tossed around some of the biggest stories uh, that are moving politics this week, let's talk about what you're watching under the radar uh, or over the radar, wherever it falls on your on your radar screen. Mike, what'd you bring to show and tell this week? I'm watching Nikki Haley's entrance into the uh-huh. Republican primary. I mean, uh, for, it signals a lot of things. The first is it signals that the 2024 cycle is officially here. So welcome, everybody. I'm sure you were waiting for it. You know, heart, heart rate and your blood pressure just couldn't couldn't wait any longer. It's back. Um, but also, you know, look, Nikki Haley is just kind of this, this kind of sad figure to me. There was so much promise. There was so much potential. And she just so squandered it, like so many of the era did. And I was writing this piece uh, for for the New York Times about what it meant. And I'm kind of like, she, uh, what is her tagline? Like, I'm the establishment candidate who knows how to take down the establishment. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what the what the, the the narrative for her campaign is. Like, what lane even is she trying to find? It's she's a woman. She's of Indian, you know, descent. But she's also, you know, completely has no viability in either of those lanes beyond kind of this small niche of the Republican base. So what is she doing? Is it a serious run for presidency? Certainly not. Some people are saying she's running for vice president. I don't think it's a serious bid for vice presidency either. Yeah. I think it's just a, I have I'm I'm done yeah. if I'm not on stage and involved and I'm not going to probably get the number one or the number two spot, yeah. but maybe I can get a good ambassadorship out of this and yeah. kind of continue to be somewhat relevant. Um, look, I know we're going to be talking a lot about the campaigns as they get underway and as they yeah. roll out in the coming weeks and months, but I think it was wise, I guess, uh, for, for her purposes to go first because she at least gets some of that runway. Yeah. If you're sixth or seventh, yeah, yeah. You then no, no one's going to pay attention or even right. know if you got in. Right. 
But to what end, I don't know. I mean, no one's going to remember Nikki Haley is even in this thing, um, probably by the beginning of next week. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you mentioned like, you know, I don't even know what her lane really like. What, what does she want to be? It, that reminds me, uh, there was a, I had an employee one time um, worked for me some number of years ago. Uh, I won't say who or where, but then um, she decided to run for Congress after, after she, uh, after she left um, my firm and uh, it was a, I thought it was a mistake, big mistake. And the entire campaign was premised on like, tell me who you want me to be. And that's what I see in Nikki Haley. Who do you want me to be? That's who I'll be. And however this, however that, yeah, it's. It's not a lane in politics. It's not a lane. That is not a lane. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's why I to say she didn't win. Justin, (laughs) what, what do you got? Yeah, you know. I think one big kind of under the radar development that's going to be really important both politically and substantively is the rollout of the Inflation Reduction Act and what's happening right now. You know, this was such a partisan bill when it passed Congress. And yet as it's starting to roll out and yet, you know, and now as you're seeing every, you know, Super Bowl car ad being about EVs and the culture starting to shift a little bit. You're starting to see people like Lindsey Graham making comments like we're going to make South Carolina the Detroit of electric vehicle battery production. You know, and the focus right now, (laughs) the focus right now for for the Biden administration is, you know, they're calling it winning the win. You know, we won this legislation, you know, the the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and and the semiconductors bill as well. But now how do we actually win the win? How do we make sure this is taking hold? People are recognizing the benefits. You know, startups are coming out and using the benefits. Companies are using the benefits. So that this gets to the point that this is so woven into the political and economic fabric of the United States that even the most red meat right-wing conservatives are saying, oh, yeah, well, we want to be, you know, producing EV batteries or we want to be producing, you know, components of, of renewable energy manufacturing. So this is starting to happen now in a way that I think is going to have some implications for politics that are yet to be seen. And it's also starting to have some real implications that are just beginning to emerge with respect to to foreign relations. I mean, Europe for so many years has been pushing the U.S. to pass climate legislation. And now that the U.S. has, Europe's really upset because there are all these incentives within the IRA, the climate bill, for U.S. manufacturing. And manufacturers are really starting to come to the U.S. for EV and other renewables production, renewables-related production. So they're, you know, we're, we're, they're feeling like it's kind of anti-competitive practices because the incentives are so strong. And Europe is now wanting to pass its own set of, of green incentives to do the same. So there's a lot happening in these fields that aren't getting um, top-tier attention. But it's showing that, you know, there's there's some real impact to some of this legislation that that the Biden administration has uh, succeeded in passing. I've got just one real quick thing that I want to mention. Uh, I won't go too much into detail, but, um, uh, you know, I mentioned a while back, I'm a I'm a fan of Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, who's now not there anymore and is uh, is the head of. A company called Block, you know it as Square, but they have since renamed to um, Block. Actually, Jack's formal title is uh, head uh, is Blockhead, <laughs> I, I believe that is his official title. Uh, he tweeted a couple weeks ago about the um, the uh, approval of a new app um, in the Apple Store called Noster, N O S T R, which is um, 
which is a very new thing in social media. Uh, it's an open protocol. And he tweeted that this is a milestone for open protocols. What does open protocols mean, right? Uh, essentially, there is a race to develop a social network, a new kind of social network that is not centralized, but rather that is decentralized. Um, and as, uh, as Blockworks um, put it, quote, the tech world is increasingly seeing a desire for a next generation decentralized form of social media that prioritizes its users rather than a controlling corporate entity. Uh, and so the launch of this platform, which is a protocol, not just a network, means that this is infrastructure as well as it is an, uh, an app service. And so I'm watching this very closely to see how it picks up steam. And, uh, and Jack is also now becoming a lot more critical of Elon and his moves at Twitter, uh, which I find also telling. And so um, I just want, I'm, I'm keeping my eye on that. Uh, Sounds like Mastodon. Sounds like Mastodon, yeah, but uh, but I would I would never bet against Jack Dorsey. No, and yeah. I think I think Mastodon was a great concept, yeah. and it may it may last. I just I, I think it, it, it what Jack is talking about is the future of social media platforms. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where as we know, we're going to talk about uh, the um, California Senate race, Diane Feinstein's decision not to run. Uh, this blockbuster of a race. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Mike? Find me on Mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm a Mastodon at Mike Madrid at C.im. Okay. Justin? You know, Ron, you mentioned I wrote this book, Golden, The Power of Silence in a yes. World of Noise, which is really a kind of manifesto against the attention economy in some ways. So I'd be a little yep. off-brand if I was... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. But I am on LinkedIn. You know, I've got a Twitter. I barely use Justin Zorn. <laughs> Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>